Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it teaches us and it guides us. We thank you for the way that it reveals to us who you are. And uh, we pray this morning that as we open your word that you would show us, you would show us more clearly uh, your glory and your majesty. I pray that you would uh, convict us where we need convicting and encourage us where we need encouragement. And uh, we just pray this morning that uh, everything that's done and said would be uh, pleasing and honoring to you. As we open your word, uh, we just confess that without your spirit moving and leading and guiding us, that this time will be uh, a waste of time. And so we pray that your spirit would move freely in this place, that you would show us what you want us to see, that you would teach us this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, many of you will remember, if you think about it, uh, going back a couple years uh, to the tsunami that hit in Japan. Uh, I looked it up this week. I was trying to remember exactly the date. It was March 2011, so about two and a half years ago. And if you remember that, uh, I just looked at this uh, just the other day, that 19,000 people died. There was 1.2 uh, million buildings destroyed and five, over $5 billion worth of damage. I was thinking about the, uh, just the massive effects and how awful of a tragedy that was. And as I thought about that, it reminded me of a conversation I had with a, a gentleman who's a believer, who, who loves the Lord, who was trying to make sense out of what happened in that uh, time right after it happened. And as we were talking, he, he, he uh, was relaying to me about how he'd been reading a book on uh, World War II. And he made this kind of assertion. He kind of threw out there and he said, well, been reading how awful things were in uh, World War II and some of the awful things that the Japanese did. And, and maybe this is God's retribution. Maybe that's why this is now happening. And, and just hear me on, on as we were having this conversation, the man's heart was very much just trying to sort through how could something like this happen? And in the middle of that conversation, before I got to answer that assertion, we got interrupted and I didn't get a chance to get back to it. And uh, probably two or three days later, I actually read our passage in Luke chapter 13. And it was just so clear. God showing and in his grace and in his mercy kind of showing uh, kind of even how to answer that assertion. And uh, as I thought about that, I started going, oh, I'm going to go back. And, I, and as I was reflecting on that, I never got back to talk to him about this. But as I was reflecting on it in my mind, what God clearly showed me even this week is it was his grace that I didn't go and talk to him. Because remembering back, my heart was to go and go, hey, you're really wrong on this, and let me show you why. And as, as I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about that, that w this week, what we're going to look at today, my heart condition was the exact same thing that was kind of his heart condition, and we were both missing it in the same way. And so what I want us to look at this morning, and what we're going to talk about as we follow up and we continue in this series of of what does it mean to follow Jesus and what does that look like? That's basically what our series is. We've been talking about that, looking at that each week. And then, and what we're going to look at is people coming to Jesus and what they want to do is they want to point the finger and say, those people over there are worse sinners, aren't they? Aren't they, Jesus? And Jesus quickly kind of cuts that off and he redirects it very quickly. And it's a very important thing, as I thought about it this week, for us to think about and to talk about and the assumptions we make and what's underlying that. Because when we start to do this, what we're going to see, and as, as I hope we see this morning as we talk about it, is, is this is detrimental to relationships, to loving each other as God calls us to love each other. 
But it's also detrimental to our relationship with God and how we see him. Because when we start to do this, it distorts everything. And so this is a really important thing for us to look at this morning. And so uh, what Jesus says, I'm going to be real honest, just up front with you, is really challenging. (laughs) It's very cutting what he says, or at least it was to me this week as I kept reading this over and over again. And so what we're going to look at as we try to grasp kind of what Jesus is saying and what he's directing us to, as I often do, like to ask three questions. And these are the three questions I want us to ask. First, what's the problem here? Right. The people come to Jesus and there's a problem with their assertion and their assumptions and what they're saying. So what's the problem? Second, what is Jesus's answer? And then lastly, how do we live out what Jesus's answer is? Because it's one thing to know the answer and then it's another thing to put it into practice. That can often be much more difficult. And so what is the problem? What is Jesus's answer and how do we live it out? And so let's just start with what the problem here. Luke chapter 13 verses 1 to 5. Chris just read it for us, but I'm going to read it again just so it's right in the forefront of your mind. And so it says, there are some present at this very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they are worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so what happens is Jesus, as he often is, is walking along and he's teaching and preaching and people are coming and they're asking questions. And people come all the time for all different reasons and all different intentions and they come to ask questions and they come to Jesus. And what John's gospel tells us, and we see this so clearly in the way that Jesus responds to people, is he sees the heart motivation of what they're asking. Right? As people come to Jesus and they ask him questions and they're saying things, Jesus sees right through to exactly what their heart is. And so he answers to their hearts. Oftentimes they'll say something and it seems like his answer doesn't even go with what they just said. But it's because he's looking right to what they're actually asking. And so these people approach Jesus and he knows their hearts and they ask this question. And and, uh, what they say is they talk about this tragedy that's happened and they don't even really ask the question. And Jesus picks up before they get there. And he says, yeah, well, I see what you really want to know. You want to know that this tragedy happened over here. And, and we don't know exactly what this tragedy was. It's the only time it's mentioned in the Bible. But, but what we see, there's some picture here that uh, uh, Pilate had killed some people and mixed their blood with a sacrifice. That's what it says. It'd be like someone being murdered in the church today and the blood being mixed with the communion wine. That's how awful this was, how disgusting it was. And so they come to Jesus and they're basically asking the question and he sees through and he, he articulates it. You're asking the question, they must have done something really bad for that to happen to them. Right? That's, that's what they say, and that's what the assertion is. They say that to Jesus. And so the, the fundamental problem I want us to look at before we even really get to Jesus' answer, the problem here is coming and comparing sins. Right? This happened to this person, and so now I'm going to try to figure out what was going on in their heart that made them so bad that this happened to them. And it becomes a comparison of looking at other people's sins. And that's the the fundamental problem. And that's what they ask. And so Jesus, you see how he answers in verse 3 and also in verse 5. He says it the same way, almost word for word. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, 
you will all likewise perish. And then he tells another story, and then he says the exact same thing again. And so what Jesus says is, is don't worry about that. You need to repent or you will perish. And I want us to see how serious he's saying this problem is. Right? Because here he says, unless you repent, you will perish. And so you have to think for just a second, what does he mean by that? What is he saying? What does he mean when he says perish? You know, when we read through the New Testament, there's really two ways you can define that. We can say perish as in we're, we're all perishing and that we're all winding down, we're all going to die. Right? There's, there's, a, there's a sense in Scripture of just perishing, meaning uh, physical death, we're going to die. But then there's also times in Scripture when you read through and you see different passages where perishing means eternal separation from God. And that's the, the, the fancy way of saying that's hell. Being put away from God forever due to your uh, sin. Because we are separated from God. And so you look at this passage and you go, well, what is he saying here? You know, by the way, you get that. Uh, probably the best example of that, John 3.16. The most, probably the most famous verse uh, around. I think probably more people have that memorized than any other verse. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. And so the comparison Jesus makes there is, is eternal life through faith in Jesus or perishing. And so when you read the context here and we start to think about that, what Jesus is saying is he's not saying that if you repent, you won't ever die. It won't save you from the physical death, but it will save you from the physical, uh, the uh, eternal, the separation from God and the perishing. And so what he's saying is this is so serious, repent or you will perish. And so you can hear that if you're listening and you're following with me and go, wait a second, you just said if you compare yourself to others, you're going to hell. I mean, that's essentially what it sounds like when I say that. And I want us to think about what that really means and why Jesus would say that. Why would he say it like that? And I think the picture that you get here is when we begin to compare ourselves to others, when we start to go, well, look at that person over there, their sin must be worse than my sin. What we're doing is we are, we are not seeing how God sees us and how he relates to us. Our, our view of how we get righteousness, that is right standing before God, is not even in the ballpark. Right? Because what we're trying to do when we do that, oh, that person over there must have done something really bad. And we start to point the finger and look at them. What we're trying to do is we're trying to get our righteousness by comparison. We're trying to get God to grade us on a curve. Now, I may not be perfect, but that guy's really bad. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, at least I'm better than this guy over here. At least I'm better than this. And so God says, Jesus, God in human form, stands there and says, don't do that. Repent. Stop. That's not how this works. You repent likewise or you will perish. And so what he tells them is, is don't do that. Don't go there. Don't start trying to figure out the hearts of other people. Don't try to decide that you know exactly what's going on there. He said, you look at your own heart and you repent. And so what we start with when we talk about the problem that we see here is this comparison, the seeking to know what's going on in other people's hearts to make us feel better. At least I'm not like that. That type of thinking is detrimental to relationships and it's detrimental to the way that we see God. God doesn't grade on a curve. And so when you start to try to figure that out and look at it that way, you're getting a false sense of who you are before God. And you think about it, when you're walking around comparing 
your heart to other people's hearts, what a horrible way to love one another. Right? That's just a dead end. And so Jesus says, don't do that. So that's the, that's the problem that's here. Second thing I want us to think about is what does Jesus say to this? How does he answer this? Right? So the first is, what is the problem? Is this comparing? How does Jesus answer it? And so what does Jesus say? He says, no, I tell you, unless, wise, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. And I want you to really think about what Jesus is saying. Be honest here. This is the pretty cutting part to what Jesus says. Unless you repent, you likewise will perish. What Jesus is really saying is when they come and they want to know, are those people worse sinners over there? Jesus basically says, uh, no, they're sinful just like you are sinful. Right? You, you want to know what awful sin did they do? He said, well, the, the awful sin they do is the awful sins that you do. That's basically what he says. He stops and he turns it back and he says, no, you don't, don't go there because you're no different. You too are sinners, and unless you repent, you likewise will perish. And so Jesus quickly turns it around and kind of holds the mirror up to them wanting to compare to other people. And he says, look in your own heart. You repent at what's going on with you. And so the picture that's here, and we start to think about what's really happening, why do we do that, and why do we begin to look that way? Why would they even ask him that question? Why do we try to figure out why did that happen to those people over there and what's going on? And I think part of it, the underlying uh, belief that's there is that we begin to think that we're, we're naturally pretty good people. And so if a tragedy happens, if this befalls somebody or it comes on them, they must have done something way out of character, way out of the ordinary, really bad for that to happen to them. Right? That's what we're really getting at. And we start to do that. Well, they must have done something really horrible. And under that assertion is that God owes us a good, pain-free, tragedy-free life. We're pretty good people, and since we're pretty good, God owes me. That's what we start to look at, and that's the way we often uh, interact and the way we think about things and the way we see things. But the, the picture here of what Jesus says, it's really hard to hear because it goes right to the heart of our sinfulness. kind of lays us bare, right? The Scriptures tell us in Hebrews that God's Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it opens us up and it, it, it shows us what's really going on in our own hearts. Right? And that's what happens here. And what Jesus really says is instead of stopping and marveling and going, how in the world could that happen to those people there? What must they have done? What Jesus is really pointing us to and telling us is we should stop and we should look and we go, we should marvel that God in His grace allows me to get up each day and draw breath despite my sinfulness. He turns it upside down. He changes it completely. Instead of us shaking our fists and going, how could that happen? God, Jesus basically says it's the opposite. You're completely sinful and you're ignoring me over and over. And it's only by my grace and mercy that I allow you to continue on each day. It's the opposite. And that's very hard for us to see. That's why we seek to compare ourselves to others because it softens the blow of our own sinfulness. Well, yeah, I know I'm sinful, but maybe I'm not that bad. And Jesus says, don't do that. Because when you do that, you're missing who you really are and the perfect holiness of God. You're missing the two. And so what he's 
points us to is to, to not do that, but you should repent. Right? When we try to figure out what's going on with other people, we miss it. Jesus talks like this a lot. He goes back to this over and over. Probably one of the most famous places is in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But at the beginning of Matthew 7, uh, Jesus says this. You've probably heard this. It's a very famous passage. We like to tell it to other people. Right? We like to tell other people, hey, you should do this. As we're not doing it when we tell them that. But Matthew 7 says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? And so what Jesus says real clearly there in Matthew 7 is when we begin to compare and when we begin to look at other people and try to figure out their hearts and their intentions and where their sin is so bad, we miss our own. We become blinded to our own sin. We miss what's going on in our own heart. And so Jesus says, don't do that. Right? Because when you start to do that, you get a false sense of who you are. You prop yourself up. Right? Oh, well, maybe I think I'm doing better than that guy. And then that makes you feel better. But the truth is you're not dealing with the sin that's in your own heart. It's exactly what he's getting at in Matthew chapter 7. And it's the same thing he says here when people come to him and they're trying to compare. And he says, stop, you repent. It's easy to get a false sense of self, especially when you're comparing. I was thinking back in, when I was in high school, I loved basketball. That was like outside of school and friends and normal stuff. Basketball was my thing. That's all I did. I played basketball every day. And I worked out for basketball. Did all these things to get better at basketball. And when I was a sophomore in high school, I made varsity at my high school, and I started as a sophomore, and suddenly I thought I was really good. I made it, and now I'm playing, and I'm only a sophomore, and so, and I started to have a false sense of how good I was as a basketball player, comparing myself to the guys I played with all the time, and you get used to them, and you go, oh, maybe I can shoot better than him, or I can do this, and you start to feel that way. And then after my sophomore year, I went in the summer to a basketball camp in Trenton, New Jersey. It's called a... Nike five-star camp. And there's all these great coaches and all these great players all from the Northeast. And I go there and I play. And I remember the first day you'd go out and you just play. they put you out there and you start playing games. And you'd play five or six games every day for a week. And I don't know if it was the first game, but I know it was the first day. The very first day you're out there playing. And I remember coming down the court and somebody on my team turned the ball over. And I turned around and I ran back on defense. And I got back. And right as I turned around, in position, did the right thing, put my hands up, the guy's right in front of me, coming at me. And he takes one dribble, and he picks the ball up, and he jumps, and he spreads his legs, and he jumps over my head, and he dunks the ball with two hands, and then he swings on the rim, and he jogs back down on the other side. And all of a sudden, all my false conceptions of how good I were came crashing down right there. All my dreams of I'm going to be a Division One basketball player, out the window, right there. I come to find out later the guy's name was Roderick Rose. He went on to play at University of Kentucky and then for the Houston Rockets. He played the same position I did, except I was 6'1 and slow and can't jump. And he was 6'6 and really fast and could jump over me. And so suddenly you get a clear picture of my false understanding of who I am to the reality. It's the same thing in our relationship with God. When I go around picking and choosing people that I want to compare myself with, oh, that guy did this or that guy did that, he must be worse than I am, then I misunderstand my standing before God. 
Right. Just as I was waking up to the reality of getting jumped over. It's the same thing when we come to a holy, perfect God. Suddenly we see how far we are. Me comparing myself to somebody else and acting like I've got it together because I'm comparing. That does me nothing with God. I'm totally missing the true picture. And so when that self-deception starts to creep in and when you start to compare and you start to look at other people, Jesus says, no, stop. You repent. And so then the question becomes, and this is our third point here, is is how do we do that? We talk a lot in church about repentance. right? God calls us to repent. We're supposed to repent. Repent and be saved. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is it near. You hear it over and over in the Bible. But sometimes we just kind of nod along and go, yeah, yeah, repent. And they don't really stop to think about what that means. What does that really look like to repent? Uh, A real clear, simple definition of repentance is to turn from your sin and turn to God. I heard it said, and I like this a little better because it it, it expands on that just a little bit. I read this, uh, this definition this week. Repentance is seeing that you are a wicked sinner and you are both cherished and loved. True repentance is both. Turning from your sin and turning to God. And when you turn to God, you see how He's revealed Himself in Jesus. And then you get the fullness of the picture that yes, you're a wicked sinner, but God loves you so much He was willing to do this for you. And it has to be both together. It has to be both sides together or we miss it. And see, when we compare ourselves to others, we don't see the fullness of our sin because again, we're, we're grading on that curve. Oh, well, it's not that bad. We don't see it as it is. And and the same is true. We never really get full acceptance. We're never fully cherished and loved because when we're comparing, we're always up and down. One day you may go, I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good because I'm not quite that bad. But you still know you're not right. You still know you don't have it all together. And so there's no full acceptance and being cherished and loved until you turn to God and what He's done for you. And so the picture of what it looks like in repentance is turning from our sin and then turning to God. And so the first step is is seeing my own arrogance and my own pride and my own inflated sense of worth or whatever it is. The ways that I prop myself up to look down at other people. It has to start there in recognizing that I'm doing that. Confessing that sin. Seeing that I'm sinful. And when you start to look at your heart and intentions and why you do what you do, you'll see it over and over. In the Spirit, God comes and He will convict you and He shows you those things and He does that because He loves you. He doesn't want to leave you to that. And so He convicts you and shows you. But it's not just confessing your sin. Sometimes we think of repentance that way. right? Repentance is, oh no, I'm a wicked sinner and I'm so awful. And that's it. But it then has to be turning to God and seeing that you're cherished and loved. Right? And the way that that happens when we start to think about what that looks like, right? confess that I have a log in my own eye before I try to go and get the speck out of someone else's eye. Right? As Jesus' example, I stop and I do that and I confess. And then this, what happens is that God meets you there in the midst of that brokenness and your sin. When you see that, that's where God comes in And he tells you in the gospel, 
a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done. God comes in and says, I don't love you because you're never arrogant. Because you are. And I don't love you because you're never prideful. Because you are. And I don't love you because you're never lustful. Because you are. I love you because I love you and I'm willing to come and do what you can't do for you and give it to you as a free gift. And until you see the heart of the gospel and what Jesus has done, you're just left with trying to compare and trying to earn your way. And it's only when you see the fullness of what God has done in the gospel can you ever begin to get around that. You have to see your sin, but then you have to see that you're cherished and loved because of what he's done for you. It's not because uh, Jesus didn't come and die for you and offer you salvation because you weren't quite as bad as that guy over there. Jesus came and did that because he loves you, and he loves you because he loves you. That's the end. He loves you because he loves you. He does it for you. And so when that happens, you can see that you're cherished and loved only because what he does, and it's not something inside of you, it's something he does in his character and who he is. It's the only way that you can rest in that. But when you do, when we have true repentance and we see our wickedness and our sinfulness, and it comes together with seeing that you're cherished and loved by what Jesus has done for you, it comes together in the gospel. And what happens is it produces Uh, This life of continual repentance, continually confessing and going back and then resting in that you are cherished and loved by what he does for you. And the beautiful picture is that there's these wonderful byproducts that happen when you do just what Jesus says here. When we continually repent, instead of looking and comparing and doing all these things, Jesus says, no, no, you repent. And when you do that, what happens is this beautiful picture Right? As I continually repent in my life, my view of God's love grows and grows. You see why? I see so clearly the own sinfulness of my heart each day. Pride that slips in, lust that slips in, anger, hatred, all those things, and I continually repent. God, forgive me. Forgive me for my sinfulness. Forgive me for ignoring you. And then what I see so clearly is despite how sinful I am, he loved me enough to come and take it. And my view grows. He loved me that much. And then each day I sin and I do stupid stuff and thoughts creep in my mind and I repent and then I see his love. And it grows and it grows and it grows. And so as I see As I repent, I see my need, but then I see his love. And then guess what happens? I become more and more dependent on him because I know there's nothing good inside of me. I see it so clearly. I don't have anything to offer here outside of what he's done for me. And so my love, his love that's infinite, I just see it revealed a little more each day. And it makes me want to be ever more dependent on him. Every day. And then this wonderful thing happens in the way that you deal with people. Humility. Right? When I see other people, you don't go, man, that guy is so messed up. Or maybe I do. I say, that guy's so messed up, he's just like me. He's a helpless sinner that desperately needs grace. And I know that because I'm a helpless sinner that desperately needs grace. 
And the more I see that, the more you see people in that light. And so when people come to Jesus and they go, well, what about those people over there? He goes, no, no, no. You repent. You look in your heart and what's going on with you. Right? When we start to look at other people instead of loving them the way that God's called us to, we go back to that. But when we see Jesus and what he's done for us and we see that over and over and we continually repent, what happens is a life that's marked with grace. Think about what Jesus says in John chapter 13. Love others as I've loved you. Right? Forgive others as I've forgiven you. I want you to go out and love people in the same way that I've loved you. You ever think about what that means? Jesus is saying, you know how much I've forgiven you? You know how sinful your heart is? I want you to love people in the same way. There's no place for comparing when we start to do that. Because I am so aware of my own sinfulness. There's no, I don't have time. <laughs> I'm too busy repenting of my, to, to then just go and love. And it gives you this humility. And so that starts to happen. Right? By the way, when we talk about this, oftentimes we talk about repentance of the evil things and our sin. And yes, that's true. And oftentimes those are revealed in really hard times. In tragedy and different things. But it's also clear in Scripture we should be repenting in good times. You think about that for a second. Romans 2.4 Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Right? When something good happens and it comes into your life and you catch a break, do you say, it's about time. It's about time something good happens. Or do you say, thank you, God, for the grace and mercy you've just poured out on me that I don't deserve. And so we should be repenting in good times as well. All that good that comes into our life, all that happens is by God's grace and his mercy and nothing else. He is the center of all that's good. And so in all times, we should be repenting and turning to him. Laying it at his feet, praising him for the mercy that he's bestowed on us. One last thing I want to show you, and I'll do this quickly. Look at verses 6 to 9 as a byproduct of this last part. Jesus tells a story to illustrate what he just said. He does this a lot. It says, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I have found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and I put on manure. And then if it should bear then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. And so Jesus uses this story here to illustrate what he just told him. No, no, you repent. And so you get this story of, of this tree and so what's going on? Jesus talks in parables a lot. You see, well there's a tree. And it's not bearing any fruit and it's not seeming to be doing anything. And I think given the context, what Jesus is saying is it's, it's a person that's no repentance is there in their life. There's no visible signs of anything happening. And to which the, the owner says, just cut it down, be done with them. And then the parable says, no, 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 hold on just a second. Let's give it a little longer. Let's put manure in, let's, let's dress the ground and let's continue to do it. 
I think the picture of what Jesus is saying is we come into uh, relationships in our life and we want to look and we're going to go, those people over there are so far beyond reach. Look at how sinful that person is. Right? Just, I'm done with that. And here Jesus tells this story and he says, no, 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 hold on just a second. When you repent and you know your sinfulness, you know your own heart, you know what a miracle it is that you know God and you've been reconciled to him. Right? If you're continually pen- repenting, you know what an absolute miracle it is that Jesus has come into your life and has restored you to God. And when that's the case, when you see that, when, you, when your heart is attuned to that, you look at each and every person, no matter how far gone they are, and you know the miracle that your salvation is, and you say, no one is beyond God's reach. There is no one that he can't get. And so you don't give up. You don't go, oh, just chop it down, done with it. It says, no, 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 you love them, and you speak truth, and you continue to point them to Jesus and you keep saying that and you leave the rest to me. Because no one is beyond his reach. And so this picture that emerges is that we, we rely on God in all things and in all these ways. And we continually repent and then throw ourselves on his mercy. We lead a life of continual repentance each and every day coming back over and over that it's all him and it's all his grace and it's all his mercy that's why we say this that following jesus means repentance a life of continually turning to him let's pray lord we thank you we thank you for the beauty of the gloriousness of your gospel that you love us when we are unlovely that yet while we were sinners, you died for us. I pray that you would impress that miracle upon our hearts today, that we would see so clearly that all that we have and all that we are is by your grace alone and nothing else. I pray that as we see that, that we would leave here today seeking to love people in light of that, that we would love each person that you've put in front of us in the ways that you loved us, that we would continually forgive and seek to be long-suffering and kind, just as you are to us. That would be the overflow of our lives. We thank you for all you do for us, and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This is a time now in our service where we worship through our tithes and our offerings.